You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. Hello and welcome to The Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is the great Giles Brandreth, whose latest of his many productions is a door-stopping new work of scholarship called The Oxford Book of Theatrical Anecdotes, which is surely the book that Giles was born to write. Giles, how did you set about collecting all of these, these here anecdotes? It's a good start, isn't it? My phone is now ringing. I'm going to turn it <laughs> off. It's probably... There we are. Forgive me. That's a very good start. You can edit that out or leave it in to show that this is live. Let's leave it in. That's what that's for me is the joy of theatre is it's live, except I hate people who leave their mobile phones on in the audience. Let me try and answer your question. This could be quite a long answer. And bear in mind that I once held the record for making the longest ever after dinner speech, 12 and a half hours without interruption. I will try and answer your question. Briefly shared with Nicholas Parsons, I seem to remember. I did. Neither of us could cope with sharing the record. It was quite a challenge. I might talk to you about that in a moment. But to try and answer your question, in the short term, I set about writing, finalising this book this year because of lockdown. I was due in March to begin a show with the great Dame Judi Dench at the Bridge Theatre. We were going to do a show called I Remember It Well, which was a celebration of her career. And we'd rehearsed it, we got the whole thing up and running, and it was sold out, of course, because it was Judy Dench. And then, literally, on the first night was the first night of lockdown. So we couldn't do it. And I thought, well, I've got all this, I've had, I've been collecting anecdotes for years, I've got all this material, now is the time to actually get on with this and finalise it. So that's how I happen to be doing the Oxford Book of Literary Anecdotes this year. But curiously, the book began with Judy Dench as well, 60 years ago. 1960, a famous production of Romeo and Juliet at the Old Vic Theatre in the Waterloo Road. The director is Franco Zeffirelli. The young stars are Judy Dench and John Stride. I go to a school's matinee taken by my parents. Uh, it was all parents and children. Judy Dench's parents were there. Judy Dench is playing Juliet. She's barely out of her teens herself. John Stride is playing Romeo. And the nurse is being played by a magnificent actress called Peggy Mount. Does the name mean anything to you? Too young? Rings a bell. It rings a bell. My grandmother was an actor, so that would... Well, who's your grandmother? Margaret Ingalls. Very good. Well done, her. She doesn't feature in my book. Um, But there is going to be a second edition. Mostly known in South Africa. But we don't Anyway, Anyway, um, tell your story. Sorry. So, Peggy Mount regularly play battle axe figures. She's playing the nurse. And I'm there in the audience with parents, etc. And running onto the stage comes Judy Dench in a sort of white nighty, barely out of her teens herself. She runs onto the stage and speaks her opening line. Where are my mother and my father, nurse? And from the third row of the stalls, a voice called out, here we are, darling, row C. True story. It really happened. And many years later, when I got to meet Judy Dench, I told her this story. She said, it's true. It really happened. I remember it well. So that's when I, as a child, age 10, 11, 60 years ago, got into the habit of thinking, oh, I love things when things go wrong. How exciting when the unexpected happens. So I've been collecting theatrical anecdotes all my life. But I'm afraid this answer isn't yet over, Sam. 
I'm sorry, you asked this first question. Never sorry. Carry on. I went to a school called Beedales in Hampshire, and we can talk more about it in a minute because I think it's an interesting school and it explains a lot about, in part, about this book because the school was founded by a man called John Badley, and among the first parents was Oscar Wilde. And we happen to be recording this podcast on Oscar Wilde's birthday. And when I was a boy, at this school in the 1960s, the founder of the school was still alive. And he told me stories, first-hand stories about knowing Oscar Wilde. So I've shaken the hand that shook the hand that wrote The Importance of Being Honest. But that's by the by. At this school, I had a friend called Simon Cadell, brilliant actor, went on to become famous playing in a thing called Heidi High on TV. Simon's father was an agent and his most famous client was Donald Sindon. So when I was a boy, I met the great Sir Donald Sindon as he became. And I can tell you lots of lovely stories about Donald Sindon, but what I need to tell you that's relevant to this is he was a walking theatrical anecdote and a great scholar of the history of the theater. And he and I in the 1970s, 80s worked together on a book of theatrical anecdotes that he did. And he introduced me to great stories of the 17th and 18th century in particular, and 19th century too. So how I came to love and understand this subject really is triggered by Judy Dench when I was 11 and fostered by Donald Sindon from the age of 14 for me through his love of theater stories. And I've tried to do justice to Donald Sindon in the book. Have you kept all these years sort of exercise books or something, you know, like Bob Monkhouse's famous joke books, where any time you hear a theatrical anecdote, you sort of scurry away and squirrel it down. Yes, is the short answer. The longer answer is I do two things. I keep a diary. So I have a diary. Every day I write in my diary. So if I have the privilege, for example, I wrote a biography of Sir John Gielgud, the great classical actor, English classical actor of the 20th century. And you couldn't meet Sir John Gielgud without tumbling out of him were stories on every occasion you met him. The last happy occasion I had with him was on his 90th birthday. He came to, I was an MP then in the 1990s, and he came to the House of Commons to have lunch with me and the actress, Glenda Jackson, who were both MPs at the time. We entertained him on his 90th birthday to lunch. And when he arrived at the House of Commons, ramrod back, beautiful posture, and age 90, no cane in sight. He was a curious mixture, John Gielgud, of a an Edwardian dandy and a Roman senator. Anyway, I said to him, you know, Sir John, we are so honored that you, the great classical actor of the 20th century, that you should find time to have luncheon with us on your 90th birthday. He said, oh, my dears, I'm delighted. You see, all my real friends are dead. <laughs> and he was notorious for his gaffes, the most famous of which concerned an actor, no, a writer called Edward Knobloch. You will know this story. Anybody who knows about theatre will know this story. In the 1930s, John Gielgud was having lunch with Edward Knobloch, who was a scriptwriter, and he wrote movies and he wrote plays. Famously, he wrote the book of a musical called Kismet. And he was rather a dull man, but he was having lunch with John Gielgud at the Ivy restaurant, Covent Garden. And into the restaurant came a third party who passed their table, exchanged some words with John Gielgud, and they went to sit down at his own table. And Edward Knobloch then said to John Gilgood, oh, who's that man you were talking to there? And Gilgood replied, oh, nobody of any interest, a very dull man, such a boring man, the most boring man in London. He's almost as boring as Eddie Knobloch. Oh, 
Not you, Eddie, the other Eddie Nobler. <laughs> so you couldn't meet somebody like John Gilgood without hearing stories. And I would, because I've always loved theatre stories, I kept not just a notebook of them, but I kept and collected books in which they featured. And so I had the books handy, but I also keep a diary. I've been lucky because I've worked in the theatre and I'm a, a hero worshipper. So from a young age, I would meet these great actors. I mean, when I was a student at university, which is, you know, 50 years ago, more now, I put on a pantomime, a version of Cinderella by H.J. Byron, related to the poet Byron. And I wanted somebody to write a prologue to it. So I wrote a letter to Sir Michael Redgrave, who I admired hugely because I'd seen him in a production of Uncle Vanya at the Chichester Festival Theatre, reckoned by many people who've lived over the last 70, 80 years to be the best production of any kind that they've seen in their lifetime. Anyway, I wrote to him and said, would you come and do the prologue for my student play? And 48 hours later, I got a telegram which simply contained two words, delighted Redgrave. And I obviously have kept the telegram and he did turn up. And so knowing from a young age, these great actors, I noted what they said, I read their books, I collected their books, and then I came to work. I worked with Donald Sinton on a book he did. I worked with Kenneth Williams on a book called Acid Drops, which he did. And I worked with a variety of different actors. Ned Sherin, I worked with him on a book of theatrical anecdotes. So I've been collecting this material for years, is the, the answer. Yes, and your own relationship with the theatre, I mean, I remember again, absolutely stuck in my mind from your, your memoir, where you said, as a child, you'd, you'd, you'd wanted to be something like Danny Kaye, but also Home Secretary. You'd had this sort of twin track thing that you, the theatre was absolutely one of your loves from Central. childhood, but you, you didn't go fully into it. No, I did not, because I wanted, most of all, to be a politician. I wanted to change the world for the better. That was my ambition. And the reason I said I wanted to be a kind of Danny Kay and then Home Secretary, which I did when I was interviewed by the Sun newspaper back in 1968, I think, was because my mother, believe it or not, saw me as a song and dance man. And she, her great hero, was Danny Kay. She'd seen him at the London Palladium. And indeed, people who did see him at the London Palladium said there was nothing, they'd never seen anything quite like it. Anything, ever. I've just been working with the actress Sheila Hancock. And when she was a girl, she went to the London Palladium to see Danny Kay. And before the performance, she and girls of her generation, she's 87 now, they, she and her girlfriend, they went round backstage and Sheila Hancock left her teddy bear, gave her teddy bear in the stage door as a sort of tribute to Danny Kay. And she went and she was sitting in the front row of the gallery for this sold out show, something like 1948 at the London Palladium. And onto the stage came Danny Kay holding, wait for it, holding Sheila Hancock's teddy bear. Well, she's still recovering. And it's the year 2020, it's 72 years later. Nothing so exciting had ever happened to her. That was the, the scale of what Danny Kay was like. So I made, named him, but I said I also wanted to be Home Secretary because my fascination as a young person was prison reform. Don't ask me why, the answer would take too long to tell you. But I, as a teenager, visited a lot of prisons and I was interested in prison reform and was very involved in it. In fact, my first book, since this is a book podcast, 
was written, was commissioned while I was still at university. It was called Created in Captivity. And it was about the therapeutic effects of art in prison, of being a painter or writing or doing drama in prison, the value of it. And the book was actually was sold 562 copies, which for a book about prisons, I think probably isn't doing too badly. So that was my ambition in life. And the Home Secretary at that time, now it's the Justice Minister, but in those days, the Home Secretary was the minister responsible for prisons. So my aim in life was to be a bit of an entertainer and then do the serious thing, go into politics, become Home Secretary and reform the prison system. That was my ambition. But when life reality hit me in the face, I found it didn't quite work out that way. So in the early years, I worked in the theatre, but as a producer. And I was lucky enough to work with some of the greats. And I wrote to all the greats. This is, the, this is what young people can do. I wrote to all the great stars of the day. I remember writing to Sir Ralph Richardson. Do you know how I mean by Ralph Richardson? Yeah. yeah. Do you know, Sam? Yes, yes. Great actor. I wrote to him and he said, we'll have lunch to talk about this. And we went to the Rules restaurant in Covent Garden and he wasn't interested in me at all. His eye, in fact, seemed to be caught by, I was sort of 23, 24, and he was in his 60s. His attention seemed to be caught by another actor he seemed to recognize on the far side of the room. And he waved at this man and said, oh, is that you? Stanley, Stanley, is that you? And the fellow turned towards him. And Ralph Richardson said, oh, Stanley, how you've changed. You used to be so handsome, that lovely head of red hair. Where's it all gone? You're all bald now, Stanley. And your face, it was such a round, roly-poly, jolly face. Now it's all long and lugubrious. Oh, Stanley, oh, Stanley, how you've changed. At which point the man intervened to say, I'm not, I'm not Stanley Jackson. Oh, said Sir Ralph, changed your name as well, have you? <laughs> now, what is interesting about Sir Ralph Richardson, why he is in the book, apart from being a great actor, that story isn't in the book. What is in the book is the well-attested... It's in your introduction. Oh, is it? Oh, yes, fine. Yes. So I tell it as my story, as it were. Yes, yes. But in the book, I tell stories that, as it were, are revelatory about people. When Sir Ralph appeared in Lloyd George Knew My Father a play that he did, written by William Douglas Hume, Peggy Ashcroft was in it, and a friend of mine from school, Simon Cadell, he was in it as well. He was to be found in the wings after a performance, on his knees, scrabbling around in the dark, going, has anybody seen my talent? Has anybody seen my talent? It was always small, but it used to be quite shiny. Now, this story is told several times about Sir Ralph Richardson in different productions, and it must have a basis in truth. But it tells you something, I think, about actors. He knew he had a gift, he knew it was shiny, but he felt he'd sort of lost it, mislaid it. It is true, the story that's in the book about Sir Ralph appearing in the play by Joe Orton, What the Butler Saw, and this takes place, Theatre Royal Bath, I think, he comes down mid-performance, upstage he's acting away with Coral Brown, whoever's in the play with him, comes downstage, looks out balefully over the auditorium and says, is there a doctor in the house? Is there a doctor in the house? A man identifies himself at the back of the stalls and Sir Ralph leans towards him and says, terrible play, isn't it, doctor? And retreats <laughs> to the back of the stage. Anyway. You, you say, you know, you've chosen these anecdotes, some which cast light on what actors are like or what the yeah. theatre's like. Given your, your book's got such a sort of historic range in it, 
you know, you go right back. Yeah. Do you think you can detect in a sort of pointillistic way an arc, something that's changed? Three things to say about theatre. The first is the one consistent feature of theatre over the last 500 years from the age of Shakespeare to the present day is the show must go on. Almost every one of these stories, in a way, is about we're going to do this, come what may, whatever the odds, whatever the audience is doing. You know, I mean, I, I tell the joke of how when I first played Hamlet many years ago when I was very young, the audience hated it. The critics hated it. The audience really hated it. They threw eggs at me, went on as Hamlet, came off as Omelette. That, that's a joke. But the, them against us or them with us, the audience being there, the show having to go on, that's consistent. The other thing that's consistent is every generation discovers naturalism. Every single one. They always say the last generation, oh, they were so fruity, they were so theatrical. We've discovered naturalism. So that the generation that followed Burbage said he was far too theatrical. Oh, so fruity, so over the top, so unrealistic. And on it went. And for example, there were people like Edmund Keane, people of that vintage, who felt they were discovering the new naturalism. Somebody like McCready, William McCready, who actually did invent the idea of a proper rehearsal period and wanted the actors to be, to work together before doing a play. He thought that he was naturalistic, but the next generation that came along, people like Henry Irving and Ellen Terry, they thought they discovered naturalism. And so it goes on. But the third little strand that's worth saying was actually not so much a strand, but something I've noticed because of the pandemic. I've really missed theatre. I would have been on stage at the beginning of this with Judy Dench, as I mentioned, and I do a one-man show and I, I do occasionally appear in plays now. It's wonderful being on the stage. It's exciting. It's wonderful being in the audience. The movies are fine, but they're perfect. It's there. And there's something dead about a movie. But the stage, it's live and it's happening. And interestingly, the theatres have been closed over the years, sometimes by plague. I, I think I've got a bit of peeps in there talking about the, the plague year of 1665 and how the theatres were closed then. And of course, the beginning of the war, the theatres were closed briefly. And the theatres have been closed this year. But the longest period the theatres were closed in this country was during the Commonwealth of Oliver Cromwell, who didn't want us to laugh, let alone tell jokes, certainly didn't want the theatre going on. And it was closed for 14 to 16 years. But when it reopened, the whole country laughed. There was a roar of laughter and the restoration was born. So I do encourage people to know that when all this is over, there will be light at the end of the tunnel and there will be laughter too. And it's only the theatre that can provide that. And meanwhile, all people have is the Oxford Book of Theatrical Anecdotes. They can curl up in a corner and feel that they're seeing Henry Irving and Edmund Keane and Laurence Olivier in their prime. This is the book to keep you going while the theatres are shut. Giles, I don't want to sound like a killjoy, but there's one problem with the book, it strikes me, and it's a problem that you acknowledge in the introduction, is that all the anecdotes contained in it, thanks to Oxford's high editorial standards, have to be true, and verifiably so. Was this a sort of fatal difficulty with the endeavour? It was a fatal difficulty if you're looking for just a, a one-man show with me or uh, the late Donald Sindon or an amusing evening with Ned Sherin. Because, of course, what happens is, in telling stories, we heighten them. I was desperate to get to the <clears throat> root of this story because I felt I was there. This is Peter Wingard appearing at the Bristol Old Vic in Serrano de Bergerac. Now, I'm sure I saw this. I'm sure I saw this happen. 
He is playing Serrano de Bergerac. Serrano comes on. Peter Wingard, I should say to younger of your listeners, was a matinee idol of the 1950s, 1960s, appeared in a television series called Jason King. Hugely good looking, thick black hair, marvelous. Also a great actor as well as being a matinee idol. He is playing Serrano de Bergerac. He comes onto the stage holding a candle. The candle, there's a gust of wind from the wings. The flame blows towards his hair and his hair is set alight. And so this actor is dancing around the stage trying to extinguish his blazing head of hair. And eventually he has to, he's forced to yank off his head of hair. He's wearing a wig. And Peter Wingard reveals to the audience that he is in fact bald. Now, I feel I was there, but several people have said to me they saw this production of Cyrano de Bergerac. Peter Wingard was a young man at the time and he had a head of hair. It couldn't have happened. That's why OUP say, you've got to tell the story. It's got to be authenticated. There's an example that I give, I think, of the frustration. I'm a friend of Bonnie Langford, appeared in pantomime with Bonnie Langford and Barbara Windsor. Bonnie was playing Cinderella. I was playing Baron Hardup. And Bonnie Langford famously, she started out appearing at the Drury Lane Theatre, aged about five. And uh, Noel Card famously came to the first night and said there's nothing wrong with this play that could be solved by cutting the second act and that child's throat. <laughs> so, not very nice, but much repeated, great anecdote. And Bonnie said, well, that'll be in your book. And I thought it will be, if I can authenticate it. And then I discovered in a book that was published before Bonnie Langford was born, the same story told about Noel Coward from something in the 1950s. So the idea of the Oxford University Press is with their name on the spine, you need to have this based on historical precepts. You need to have the stories taken from historical sources. So that's what I've done. So it means that I've managed to slip in a few stories of my own if I was there, if they were told to me by people that I you know, knew and I wrote it down in a published source of mine. But the more marginal anecdotes You'll have to wait for my next volume of jokey memoirs for those. Oh, yes, you can have, you can have a sort of apocrypha section. Yeah. Do you have a favourite theatre story? I mean, do you like going to the theatre? Uh, well, I do. I mean, the one that I, which I think is very apocryphal, my father was briefly and not very successfully an actor, and he tells a story about the actor who, whose only line was an extra, whose only line was to say, Hark, I hear a pistol shot. Do you know this one? No, I wish I and did. And he says, Hark, I hear a shistol pot. Oh, Apostle shit. Oh, oh, oh shit, oh, I'm God. shot. Oh, fuck, I'm fired. Uh, <laughs> I walked off stage. Oh, that's brilliant. That is brilliant. Years ago, when I began as an actor, I did a radio play. And yes, this is the line I had. I, I was, and they used to do radio drama live on the home service and even at the beginning of Radio 4. And I had this one line as a young detective. I came up to the microphone and this was my one line. That was the chair Schmidt sat in when he was shot. And it didn't come out quite right. <laughs> I think that was the end of my... The writer video. could have seen that coming, though. I mean, that's a, that's a Doctor's Use-style tongue twister, isn't it? Well, it is a little bit. But Rex Harrison, and there are some stories, authenticated stories about him in the book, and he was a brilliant actor on stage and screen. Not always loved. Not everybody I know loved Rex Harrison. But I, I, I met him coming out of the Ritz Hotel in London, he came down the stairs, he was an old man by then, and we bumped into each other and he said hello. So I said hello back, I was so excited to meet him, didn't know him, met him. We walked down Arlington Street and into the Caprice restaurant. 
And he took off his coat and sat down and then said to me, why have you brought me here, young man? And he had no idea who I was or why I was there. His eyesight went towards the end of his life, but he carried on appearing in My Fair Lady, even in his 70s. Wonderful stories recorded by Patrick Garland of Rex Harrison wandering around the stage, getting too close to the edge, going, damn, 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 oh, fuck, as he fell into the orchestra stall. <laughs> this is a true story about Rex Harrison. 1950s, in the original production of My Fair Lady on Broadway, Rex Harrison, Julie Andrews, Stanley Holloway playing Mr. Doolittle. Rex Harrison not much loved, except by the audience. After the performance, Rex Harrison and Stanley Holloway come out of the theatre. Whole crowd of people waiting every night for Rex Harrison's autograph, but that night his limousine is waiting, he's in a hurry, he hasn't got time for these people, but all his fans are there with their autograph books out. He brushes past them to carry him into his limousine. And uh, in fact, one of the fans is so annoyed that he actually sort of taps to try and get his attention, taps Rex Harrison on the arm as he passes by. At which point, Stanley Holloway observing the scene says, this must be the first recorded example of the fan hitting the shit. Yes. <laughs> and you authenticated that. It's a true story. And the purpose of these little moments is to give you a flavour of how people were, what their attitude to the theatre was, what their colleagues' attitude to them was. And I suppose that little story, in a way, illustrates how some of the fellow thespians felt about Sir Rex. I admired him hugely. Well, a point you make also is that, that the number of anecdotes that, that an actor attracts isn't necessarily in proportion to their excellence as an actor. It's a sort of separate issue. What is it, do you think, that... that I mean, with some people like Coward, obviously, he was, he was just a wit, and so he was, was going to say witty things. But... You know, is, is there something that you think, some quality that produces anecdotes in and around? Because, you know, some people like sort of Edith Evans and, and you know, Woolfit and so forth, you know, the anecdotes just flood into them and Gilgood. They do. And I think it's a reflection of what they were like as personalities. I think the big fruity personality usually has stories to match and often a unique voice as well. There are a huge number of stories about Sir Donald Woolfit in the book partly because he was blessed in having as his dresser at one stage and later as his biographer, the great playwright, Sir Ronald Harwood, who wrote a play, The Dresser, and then a biography of Woolfit and wrote a lot of these stories down. I'm pleased to say I was able to add a couple of, of extra stories for him, but Woolfit was larger than life. Gilgood talked perpetually. He was just one long walking anecdote, whereas Michael Redgrave, an equally great actor, but it was a more reticent personality. It didn't have a voice that was so easily imitable. So I think that's partly of it. The reason I think that theatre anecdotes work on the whole is that they are like little miniature plays. Having been a politician and having, I think probably in my time, I may have compiled even a book of political stories. I've certainly done political quotations. They don't stand up as well, political anecdotes. And I think that may be because the politicians are interested in themselves whereas the actors are interested in the audience. So they want to tell a story that will work for the audience. And they almost work it up. They almost want things to go wrong. And I, I, I love that. Well, there's an absolute wealth of things going wrong and occasionally going right in this marvellous Salmagundi of anecdotes. Charles, thank you very much. What was that word you used? What was that word? Salmagundi. How do we spell that? I'm about to do my own podcast with Susie Dent and I wanted to try and flummox some ah. of the words. Spell it out for me. S-A-L. Yep. 
M-A-G-U-N-D-I. And what does that mean? Like a, like a smirgersbird? There's something like that, yes. I'm probably going to find out I've used the word quite wrong and it's a sort of lizard, but, you know, no, there we Salma are. Gundy, I love it. I'll go into the book of podcast anecdotes. Anyway, Charles Brandreth, thank you very much indeed for your time. Great fun being with you, Sam. You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph.